You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Anne Rice. This program originally aired in 2015. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Anne Rice, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Nearly 40 years ago, Anne Rice reinvented a genre with the publication of Interview with a Vampire. Subsequent novels presented undead characters capable of love and jealousy and pride and benevolence common to mere mortals. Rice's vampires are gorgeous and elegant aesthetes, with a tendency toward the decadence, depravity, and relentless longing one might expect among beings facing eternity. A literary superstar was born. Even if you've never read an Anne Rice novel, and I had not, there are few writers who have had as much influence on culture. Anne Rice has 32 best-selling books to her credit. In addition to 13 volumes in The Vampire Chronicles, she expanded her immortal cosmology to books about werewolves, witches, and demons, along with a series on angels and two about the life of Jesus Christ, the latter written after rediscovering the Roman Catholic faith of her youth. She's since disavowed the church and no longer calls herself a Christian. The vampire Lestat de Lioncourt and his supernatural cronies took a break during that conversion and have reemerged in the digital age with Prince Lestat, Rice's first Vampire Chronicles book in 11 years. Before sitting down with me on stage at the Music Hall, we agreed that there would be no spoilers about Prince Lestat, but I did ask her for a brief outline of the new book. Prince Lestat is set in the present time. It's the first book in the Vampire Chronicles in a very long time that deals not just with my hero Lestat but with the entire tribe of the undead and I I wanted it to be big in scope Um, I wanted to deal not just with him but with all the people amongst the vampires who are responding to him and I wanted to deal with how the tribe of the undead is, is dealing with science, with satellite technology, with the internet, with the information age, with um, iPhones with with um, all of the things that are shocking us and jarring us as as people, and I, I wanted to really report from the interior of the vampire world as to all of these activities, and that's really what the novel is about. As it opens, the tribe is in crisis, multiplying um, too rapidly, fighting over territory in big cities around the world, and they they need a leader. And there's a young vampire, Benji. Benji Mahmood, who has a, a, an internet radio station just for vampires, and he keeps calling to the elders of the tribe to please come, be parents, help us. We are a parentless tribe, and this is not right. And the novel is really about the people that respond to that call and how Lestat himself responds to the call when people want him to be the prince or the leader. I love that uh, the internet radio station emanates from New York, and New Yorkers all think it's performance art. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I was thinking that, you know, a lot of time has passed. We are in a new age, new technology, digital media. Some of the vampires have built these remote chateaux, and they isolate themselves. But s- surveillance and satellites can find them. You know, mm-hmm. everyone has a camera. Right. How does a secret society exist in the Internet age? Well, that, that's the challenge, and, and I'm, I'm going to keep writing about this in the next book also. How do they respond? And, and I also think, what, what is it like to be um, 
a 3,000, 4,000 year old immortal to have lost those you love thousands of years ago and now suddenly you have the internet where you might be able to find them. If you set up a web page, if you start sending coded messages that only your oldest friends will understand, you might be able to find people that have been lost to you forever. And the internet's opening all those all those possibilities for these characters, just as it's opening those possibilities for all of us. Right. There is just stunning progress, especially for a being that is thousands of years old to witness. But there are also some sort of uh, funny ways to look at it. Lestat, for example, um, he's kind of like someone's father or aunt that has to keep relearning how to send email um, or, or forgets to charge his phone. Exactly. So, yeah. so these are some of the sort of little mundane realities that they can't yes. quite adapt to. Yes. And, I, and I wonder if, you know, what happens when the mystery is gone out of this? How do you bring in that mystery that's been so present in all of your books? I don't think the mystery has to go. Um, uh, I know what you mean. It, and I think it's been jarring to some readers, perhaps, to, to, to have these characters doing something besides... You know, sitting in candle-lighted rooms listening to Mozart and things <laughs> like this. But um, I, I think it's a, it's a delightful challenge to keep the glamour and keep the romance and keep the velvet and the satin and the lace and the candlelight and have uh, the 90-inch flat screen on, on the wall <laughs> with uh, Apocalypse Now, you know, flashing. And, and I love talking about that combination of elements. Mm. And, and, and I think vampire fiction, in a way, has always done that. Uh, the original Dracula, wasn't there mention of phonograph records and early recording devices in there? I, I think Dracula was coming from Transylvania to be part of the modern world in London, and that novel, um, we can't tell now because it's, it was written so long ago that we, we don't, we're not aware of that, but that novel was dealing with its own modern technology in a way. Well, when you say vampire fiction, I mean, for a lot of people, you are one of the great progenitors of that, you know, and nobody was writing about things from the vampire's perspective in the 1970s, so what motivated you to do that? You know, it was a whim. It was just a whim. I, really? I literally was sitting there one night. It was, it was a period where um, I was writing a short story every night just to, as an exercise, wanting to be a writer, enjoying being a writer. And I thought, what would it be like to interview a vampire and get him to tell you, really, from the heart, what it was like? to be who he was, what it was like to drink blood. What, you know, does he, does, he, does he love the victim? Does he feel the heartbeat of that victim? Does he, does he know something about that victim that only he can know? And I wrote the story. It was about 30 pages. Uh, and I took it out over the years to rewrite it from time to time. And the last time that I took it out, um, it began to grow into the novel. And suddenly, I don't know, something just happened for me. I, it was as if I was able for the first time to do everything I wanted to do with writing. I'd struggled with pedestrian realism and I could never really do anything significant with it. But writing from the point of view of this vampire who suddenly acquired a name um, for the first time, Louis, and, and started really talking from the heart uh, in depth and at length about how he became a vampire, it was as though I'd stepped into my own reality and I could talk about the things that mattered to me for the first time. What was the appeal of the eternal, you know, rather than just the mere mortals, do you think? You know, I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I think there's something about me that's always, I've always been a bit of an outcast. I've always been very conscious 
of the time in which I live and how strange it is compared to other times in history. I, I was born in New Orleans, very old-fashioned city. Um, I grew up in a very old neighborhood filled with houses from the 19th century, going to an old church that had been built in the 19th century. I never felt quite at home in America. It was, it was a bit of a shock to me to discover America after growing up. Uh, down there. And and maybe it was easy for me to write from the point of view of someone from another time, because I felt like I was from another time. Mm, and and the vampire is such a rich metaphor for us, you know, because we're all, in a way, outcasts. We're all, in a way, predators. We're all, at times, uh, confronted with our own ruthlessness, I think. Um, it can be as simple as sitting down in a restaurant to have a delicious meal when you realize that a lot of the world is going to bed hungry, mm. and they don't have anything. And we're making the decision to, you know, order filet and, you know, whatever from the menu. Um, anyway, it all opened up for me when I started writing about the vampires. And, and uh, my world changed. Yeah. It really did. Well, and the world has changed a lot since then. And, of course, vampire fiction has taken off. We have the Stephanie Meyer Twilight series, uh, True Blood on television, so many uh, films and, and TV shows about the vampire and there's a, a great bit in this book, Prince Lestat, when one of the characters really dislikes the unrealistic sloppiness of blood-dripping vampires on TV and films. You know, no self-respecting vampire <laughs> would leave blood. And I wondered about you. When you watch them, what do you think of these? That's exactly what I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know... I mean, it's, it's like watching somebody, you know, just drip barbecue sauce all over themselves. I just think, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that if I were a vampire, I would be very neat and my fangs would go in very discreetly and I would take in all the blood. And that's what Louis and Lestat and Armand and my characters do. Mm -hmm. They have exquisite manners and they wouldn't dream of getting blood on their clothes. And they also care a lot about their clothes. Well, and they wear exquisite clothes. Yes. You know, the sort of velvet frocks of the 18th century and now um, Hugo Boss suits and Ralph Lauren tweeds. Are, are, are vampires one percenters, Anne Rice? <laughs> well, I, I think any immortal is going to figure out how to get wealth. I, I, think that's, I think it's unimaginative to imagine that immortals would have trouble mm -hmm. with something like that. If, you're, if, you, if you have telepathic abilities, if you're invulnerable to disease, if you've lived a long time, you're going to figure out how to get all the coin you need, I think. And that, that's more or less how I see it. You know, I see that as kind of logical. Mm -hmm. And some are better than others. Then there are some vampires in my universe that um, can't handle anything to do with practicality, and they drift through the world in rags, practically, because they've turned against all things material, really. Author Anne Rice there, talking about the accumulated wealth and financial savvy of immortal beings. Our conversation was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more Writers on a New England Stage with Anne Rice on this special edition of Word of Mouth from NHPR. The world is a vampire.
I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Anne Rice, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. Rice joined us while on tour for Prince Lestat, the first book in her Vampire Chronicles series in more than a decade. The book picks up in the contemporary world when vampires have iPhones and internet radio and are under attack by The Voice, an agitated, meddling force which telepathically commands the massacre of young vampires across the globe. In this excerpt from the audiobook, Lestat himself describes when he first heard The Voice inside of his own head. It is read by Simon Vance. Come now, I love you, said the voice. You're not alone in this. You never were. I could feel the voice inside me, around me, embracing me. Finally, I lay down to sleep. He was singing to me now, singing in French, singing some lyrics put to the beautiful Chopin étude Tristesse. Lestat, go home to France, to the Auvergne, where you were born, he whispered, just as if he were beside me. Your father's old chateau there, you need to go there. All of you human beings need a home. So tender it sounded, so sincere, so strange that he would say this. I did own the old ruined chateau. Years ago I had set architects and stonemasons to rebuild it, though why I did not know. I saw an image of it now, those ancient round towers rising from that cliff above fields and valleys where in the old days so many had starved, where life had been so bitter, where I had been bitter, a boy bound and determined to run away to Paris to see the world. Go home, he whispered. Why are you not winking out the way I am, voice? I asked. The sun's rising. Because it is not morning where I am, beloved Lestat. Ah, then you are a blood drinker, aren't you? I asked. I felt I'd caught him. I began to laugh, to cackle. Of course you are. He was furious. You miserable, ungrateful, degenerate brat prince, he was muttering. And then he'd left me again. Ah, well, why not? But I hadn't really solved the mystery of the voice, not by a long shot. Was he just a powerful old immortal communicating from another part of the globe by bouncing his telepathic message of vampiric minds in between, like light bouncing from mirror to mirror? No, that wasn't possible. His voice was too intimate and precise for all that. You can send out a telepathic call to another immortal by that method, of course, but you can't communicate directly, as he had been doing all along with me. Rice cleverly makes Lestat the author of her books, which chronicle vampire history dating back 6,000 years. It is he, not she, who is writing the books that we cynical humans think of as fiction. Lestat is not, as they taught us in English class, what we would call a reliable narrator. Let's get back to my interview with the vampire writer, Anne Rice, in which I included questions submitted by the audience. I began by asking her about how she wrote about Lestat after more than a decade of absence. Well, I, I, I really don't think I ever really said goodbye to him. He was always there with me. He's, he's more real to me than any character I ever wrote about. And what happened was I just began to really miss him. 
And I began to want to uh, get with him again, hear his voice. But this is not an easy character to get with. I mean, he has to be wooed. And I I don't want to sound coy or precious about it, but it's as if I'm channeling something from another plane. And I have to beg him to come through. And then when he does, he will not stop. And he takes over. And it how, becomes how hard really, do you beg? What? How? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to beg. I had to, I had to read. I went back and read all the other books. I read long passages. Yeah. And, and very quickly, I felt I was back with him and I could hear him talking. And, and the, the period of time in which I didn't write about him, I think it's been very good for me and him. I mean, a lot of fresh ideas have come to me. I couldn't have written this book um, any sooner than this. I had to ponder. I had to think. I had to go through things in my own life. Um, When I wrote Interview with the Vampire, when it was published, that was 1976. And it was almost nine years later before I published the second book, The Vampire Lestat. I had to go through a lot before I could even get to book two. So uh, this break has done a a world of good for me. So much has gone on in the world. Question from the audience. Why Lestat again? Personally, I am so grateful, but I'm curious what drove you to revisit this character. The intensity, the fact that I missed him, the fact that I I achieved for some reason an intensity with him that I don't get perhaps with any other character. I love the characters I write about. I I love them all for different reasons, and I never write for very long about a character that I don't love. Um, I'm not a a writer who's driven by anger or or resentment or or, um, alienation so much as as by love and embracing of of characters. But with Lestat, something happens that uh, just doesn't happen for me with any, any other character. I can't take it all the time. I don't want it to happen all the time. But it's, it, I felt it was worth going back to him, no matter how much pain or despair he brings with him into my, my own pain and despair. Yeah, he does have genuine feeling and that, that passage of time, that loss. W- would you like to... Live eternally? I mean, is there any desire in you? Oh, I I don't think I could turn down the dark gift of immortality if somebody offered it to me. I I mean, I'm sure I would take it. I think there are people who tell me that they would turn it down. But I I wonder, I mean, would you turn it down? I don't think so. (laughs) It it depends on when I would be, when I would be made. And, And that's a question for you. When, if you look over your life, you know, you've had a varied life, you know, tremendously successful, um, mm-hmm. lost a child, lost mm-hmm. a husband, mm-hmm. um, you know, had a very full career. W- when would you like to have been made as, if you look back over your life? Well, I wouldn't want to give up a moment of the life I've had right up to this present evening. Uh, I, w- I would say right now. Okay. Yeah. God, I would. <laughs> I think I'd go when I had better skin. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> But, no, there, but I, I think you're making a very good point when people say they want to be immortal. They, they want to be immortal at 30 or 35. <laughs> yeah. Sylvia Brown, the psychic, said that everybody on the other side was 35. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, such a challenge in writing about vampires because you age, your readers age, and of course you get you new readers, but mm-hmm. vampires don't age. So you just witness it all. What is it like for you to evolve those voices over time? I mean, do you play that out in your head? Does it just happen? Well, the way I write, it's always been spontaneous and and instinctive, and I discover characters on the page. I really do let them talk, and if 
the pages start to go bad for any reason, they don't feel authentic, I tear them up and throw them away. And on the computer, that means deleting them or saving them to a file that you're going to lose in your archive. But it, I discover them. They, they, they truly do come alive for me on the page. The old cliche is really true. And I look forward to that. I look forward to finding out more about all of my characters in the second book after Prince Lestat. I'm looking at a listener question here that sort of keys off of that, that when it's not working for you, when you first started writing, how did you handle rejection? What kept you from quitting? And did you ever have that experience of just waiting for that character and it just didn't come? Oh, I've, I've had that experience, certainly. There have been times when I was blocked. And, and as for rejection, um, I think you have to be very, very stubborn when you're a writer. You have to believe in yourself, and you have to protect your own voice and uh, your own vision, your own characters. And that's kind of my obligation as I see it as a writer. So I didn't listen really to people who didn't get the work. I mean, if they said this is no good and you have no talent and you're not a natural writer, which they did say, Mm -hmm. uh, I simply just nodded and thank you for sharing and moved on. And I moved on to try to find people who did respond to the work and did get it and did see where I was going. And I think that's what all writers really have to do. You know, we, we, we cannot let ourselves be destroyed by the people that don't necessarily share our vision. We have to believe that if this works for us on the page, if this really matters to us, this, this little world that we're in, it's going to matter for somebody else. Another question from the audience. Writing seems like such a solitary, difficult life. Is it worth it, and would you recommend it to a young writer? Well, I certainly would recommend it, um, but there's no question that I've had a lot of my dreams come true in this world. And I did find people that understood my visions as eccentric and strange as they are. Even even my erotica, which is very shocking and very strange, uh, did find a readership and has been read for 20 years. And and so it... it uh, for me, I would say absolutely it's worth it. There's no question that it's worth it. But someone else might give a very different answer. I think um, the worst thing any writer can face is complete indifference. People don't care. You know, you work on a book, you throw yourself into it, you publish it, people don't care. And I have written books that people didn't care much about, really, and didn't just weren't interested in. They just didn't find the experience to be intense. And that can be very discouraging. But all it ever did was challenge me to go back to the drawing board and just write another book. Um, but I, I, I would say absolutely it's worth it. It's, it's what I wanted to do from the time I was a small child. I never could do anything else that was really worthwhile. Um, it was the thing, the only thing I really had talent for, and I'm very glad that I did it. I want to talk about your childhood a little bit. You mentioned, you know, growing up Catholic in New Orleans, a very right. Catholic city, uh, you know, a city where the, the dead are buried above ground. They're very present, very with you. Mm-hmm. But you, in Catholic school, there's so much messaging about restless souls and what happens to the undead. When did you begin to sort of form your own vision of the undead? Well, I did grow up intensely Catholic. I, I lived in a Catholic city in a Catholic ghetto and went to Catholic school. And I, I, I think when I lost my faith at 18, it was, it was catastrophic. I lost the whole world. I suddenly didn't have that whole universe with all the saints and the Blessed Virgin Mary and, and Jesus and God and the angels. And, and the Catholic universe is a particularly glorious and well-developed universe. 
It really is. It's magnificent, and you don't ever feel alone when you're a Catholic. At least I never did. So when I did lose faith in the very foundation of it, it was, it was catastrophic. I was filled with grief. And I think a lot of that grief went in into interview with the vampire. Mm. Louis is a very melancholy, um, broken individual. And he doesn't take the gift of immortality easily. He's too torn with grief, too, too um, guilt-ridden, and too miserable. And I think all that's me writing about losing my Catholic faith. Mm. I didn't know it. You know, I couldn't have done it if I had realized it, but I think it's all there. Was that a gradual loss? Was there a, a precipitating event? What, what? I went to college, and uh, I began to ponder all the things I'd been taught, and I lost my faith. That's, that's what really happened. I stopped believing in God or talking to God. And that loss for me, that lasted about 30 years. And then faith did return to me, and I went back to the Catholic Church in 1998, and after 12 years, once again, I lost faith. But it was not in God this time. It was more in organized religion and in the religions that, um, that I'd studied over the 12 years. I, I remained a believer after that. Um, but I remained a believer who wanted to seek for answers outside of organized religion. And I, and I did a lot of intense studying. You, you, I could say that I left the first time at 18 without really knowing why I left. I left the second time in 2010 um, knowing why I was leaving. I'd love to talk more about that because it's such uh, rich ground. I, uh, one of my uh, colleagues was a producer for the Catholic Channel for a long time, and I remember when you came back to Roman Catholicism, she said, they were all like, we got her. She's back. <laughs> you know, she's been saved. And, and, and there was a sense of sort of victory. And I wondered if there was for you... Were you sort of turning your back on the books that you'd written or the, the, the cosmology that you'd created? Because it was sort of treated that way. No, I, I never really did. I didn't think I would ever write about vampires again because they were associated in my mind with tragedy and grief and loss mm-hmm. and with nihilism. With, with, uh, they were a group of people that didn't know any answers. They were preternatural or immortal, but they really didn't have any special revelation. So I thought now that I had gone back to Christ and gone back to the church, I would not write about them ever again. But I never disowned or, or repudiated the books and went right on uh, really loving signing them for readers and talking about them with readers on social media, whatever. I, I, ne- I didn't even really turn on my erotica. I did not talk about it very much because it was so offensive to fellow Christians. But um, I didn't turn my back on it. And I wasn't asked to turn my back on it, really. And, and I did receive, at that time, a lot of generous support from, from Catholics. I really did. You know, it was interesting. I've always felt like an outcast, a misfit, a person who didn't belong. But when I went back in 1998, for a while I knew what it meant to be a member of something, an accepted member of something. And that was a very seductive and wonderful thing. Mm. I'm back out again. I'm no longer a member. I'm an outcast again. And that's just the way it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually have a couple of questions about that. Um, you offered a wonderful response to traditional Christianity in regards to LGBTQ issues. Could you comment on that? Is that part of what precipitated you turning away from organized religion? Is- well, I, I actually turned away for theological reasons. I, I had done a lot of intense biblical study, and I could not find 
even in the foundational documents of Christianity, coherent arguments for most of what Christianity holds to be true. So that was, that was definitely happening in my mind. But the social pressure caused me to publicly repudiate it and leave, and a lot of it had to do with the treatment of gays um, today by many Christians and the treatment of women and, and, and such issues as creationism versus science and, and things of that kind uh, that weren't specifically Catholic issues, but they were Christian issues mm. and political Christian issues in America. And, and yes, I mean, I've always had an enormous amount of love for gay people and always identified with them in a lot of ways. Um, and that outsider aspect. Yeah, definitely. And I understand that. And I don't feel comfortable as any particular gender. I'm always shocked when I'm reminded that I'm a female or that anyone sees me in, in some specific demeaning way because I'm a woman. Uh, I'm always kind of, that's always a bit traumatic for me. And I've throughout my life been very awkward as a female, uh, you know, and was often told in the 50s and 60s that I was unfeminine and behaved in very strange ways. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. Were you a tomboy or? Not particularly, but um, there was a lot of pressure in the 50s and 60s, to, especially the 50s when I was growing up, to be feminine and do things in feminine ways. And when you're an adolescent, you want so badly to be accepted. Mm. I wanted to be a girl, you know. I, I wanted to be valued by boys. And, and I was awkward, and I didn't, I didn't fit. But to get back to the, the issue of supporting um, the gays, this was something that I felt very deeply and, and always had, long before my son was ever born, and certainly long before I ever dreamed he would be gay or came out of the closet. I was a great supporter of, of gay rights. And and early on, the gay audience for my vampire novels was very vocal and very, yeah, very Yeah, they wonderful. really embraced them. They really did. Yeah. And some of the best reviews of Interview with the Vampire that were ever written, I thought, were written by gay critics. And, and I valued that very much. I Anne Rice there, author of Prince Lestat, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. We'll continue our conversation after a short break, and when we come back, Anne Rice will talk about vampire sexuality, the wafer-thin line between Christian and vampire imagery, and the rebranding of the undead as kinder, gentler, and no longer damned. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please stay with us for more writers on a New England stage with Anne Rice on this special edition of Word of Mouth. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Anne Rice, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. 
Rice's most recent book, Prince Lestat, revives several characters from her best-selling Vampire Chronicles series of novels. Prince Lestat signals a return to the undead beings and spirits abandoned by Rice for more than a decade as she practiced and then publicly rejected the Roman Catholic faith of her childhood. Lestat is familiar to Anne Rice fans as both narrator and sometime anti-hero of the Chronicles. He's the 18th century libertine turned contemporary rock star, sometimes amoral, often generous, always a dandy, and as the centuries wear on, prone to pangs of world weariness. He was famously played by Tom Cruise in a blonde wig in the 1994 film Interview with the Vampire, here with Brad Pitt playing his paramour and protege, Louis. Pain is terrible for you. You feel it like no other creature because you are a vampire. You don't want it to go on. No. Then do what it is in your nature to do. And you will feel as you felt with that child in your arms. Even as a point of view, God kills indiscriminately. And so shall we. For no creatures under God are as we are, none so like him as ourselves. Earlier in the show, Anne Rice talked about her support for and popularity among the gay community, which operated in far more secrecy when her vampire series began in the mid-1970s. My impression was that the film, Interview with the Vampire, played down the homoeroticism between vampires. I asked Rice if that bothered her. I didn't think it played it down. You didn't? No. Um, my vampires actually don't have literal sex. Yeah. And, and what they got in the movie, what, what Neil got in the movie, I felt, was that intensity between Louis and Lestat. And, and also very much with Armand and Louis when they kissed. And, and uh, that was a very uh, meaningful thing, I felt, in the film. So I, I felt Neil Jordan got that, that he didn't hesitate to play them as completely involved with one another. Well, that's that's the thing that strikes me that there is a lot of fluid sexuality in the books. You know, there's um, there's eroticism in love between genders. You know, between male, male, female, female. But I never really knew if the parts worked. <laughs> Do you know if they were actually having sex? Sex? I guess you're what, answering that question no, for me. They are not. Yeah, exchanging blood is the erotic act for them. But in this book. There is an interest in the parts. Um, well, maybe maybe I should back up. <laughs> um, the young, the young, brilliant scientist, Fareed, Fareed, Fareed. whom I named after my cardiac surgeon in New Orleans. <laughs> well, he's such a great character, and this is, you know, this is more vampire chronicles for the post-CSI generation, right? Tell us a little bit about this character. Well, Fareed, it won't be a spoiler, I think, to talk about Fareed. He appears early in the book, and he's a vampire doctor. Yeah. And I felt inevitably this tribe of immortals would have some vampire doctors and scientists. It's not easy for me to write about them because of my lack of understanding of science, but I felt that they would, would be there. And Fareed is exactly that that person, and he's studying himself and the other vampires and figuring out ways to interrupt their processes to make possible things for them that weren't before. Mm. He can operate on vampires. He can provide working eyes for a vampire that has been blind. He can provide a working limb for a vampire. 
um, who did not have that limb when he was made immortal. He can do those kinds of things because he figures out what's going on uh, in their bodies, that, that the, the spirit that animates the vampires uh, is changing their bodies slowly over thousands of years. And one of the things it immediately does when it enters the body is stop all processes. The body just stops. And Fareed figures ways to inject hormones and, and chemicals that will override that stoppage and make the body once again... Regenerate. Regenerate, exactly, and begin to age just briefly enough so that he can harvest from that body various cells and... and um, so, so he takes <laughs> tissue samples. He oh, yeah. takes blood samples. Yeah. He's particularly interested in Lestat's fluids. Yes, he is. <laughs> but we don't want to spoil this. For I'm not going to go any further than that. Yeah. But, but Lestat, you know, he's poetic. He's a, he's a man of another age. Right. He, he's dubious about this kind of genetic engineering. And yeah. I wondered if you were. Uh, no, I mean, I think it's entirely possible. I've been reading, you know, I read... I, devour the science section of the New York Times every Tuesday or Wednesday whenever it comes out. And I'm fascinated by all the stories that, that we get all the time about the experiments, what people are doing. So I, tr- I did my best to put that into the book. As a, a, and, and I do have a brilliant doctor friend, a very dear friend, who advises me from time to time on certain language and things that I'm using. He's not responsible for my egregious mistakes, but he's a very big help. <laughs> Okay, so here's the inevitable question. Which one of your books is your favorite, can you say? Of all the books I've written, mm-hmm. well, it's always the front runner, the one that's happening now. But really, of all the books I've written, I think Christ the Lord, The Road to Cana is absolutely the best book I feel I was ever able to do. Wow. And I know it doesn't appeal as much to the majority of my readers as some of the other books, but for me, it just was a great creative challenge. Mm-hmm. And I was able to do something I felt there that, you know, in making Jesus of Nazareth a living, breathing character mm-hmm. and yet keeping him absolutely biblically and theologically correct and, and just able to get in his point of view and get with how he might have felt on a, a hot, very discouraging afternoon in Nazareth, you know, after working all day at carpentry and construction. And to me, that novel was a joy to write. It, it, again, it was not something that, um, it was very much respected as a publication, but it, it, the, many of my readers don't read those mm-hmm. novels that I wrote about mm-hmm. Jesus, and they're not interested, and I understand that. I really do. Mm-hmm. A book has to achieve a certain impact, and if you don't get that impact for people... You have no one to blame but yourself, mm-hmm. you know. But for me, that's the novel I love the most of anything I've been able to write. So this was the second. Uh, there was the second. Christ, right? There was one of Christ as a boy, sort of told a little through boy, the and voice. that one right now is being made into a movie. Mm-hmm. It's being shot right now in Europe, and uh, with a wonderful director, Cyrus Norasta, mm-hmm. who did a great film called The Stoning of Soroya M. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it's about uh, a woman whose husband wants a divorce, and when he cannot get it, he accuses her of adultery, and she's stoned to death. Mm-hmm. And it's a breathtaking film, and Cyrus wrote that film and directed it. With, he wrote it with his wife, Betsy. They came along right after I saw that film. I got the call that they were interested in Christ the Lord out of Egypt. I was absolutely delighted. Mm-hmm. And they wrote a great script, and they're filming it right now um, in Europe, and they should be rapping soon. They've been working on it for a couple of months. Well, and, 
Um, there, it won't be out till Easter of 2016, but uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I know that Universal has actually purchased all of the titles, or 13 titles from The Vampire Chronicles. It has, And yeah. so, so what happens when you're, now when you're writing a novel and you know that, you know, Tom Cruise has played Lestat or Stuart Townsend, are you, are you envisioning this character in your head differently? No, I have to put all that out of my mind. I see Lestat the way I see him. And he looks more, if you want to know how he looks to me, he looks more like the actor Anson Mount. If you've ever seen that actor in Hell on Wheels, that's who Lestat looks like to me. It's about the same kind of square face, same kind of mane of hair, yeah. and that same um, credible, hard, cold, blue eyes, but, but uh, deep-feeling heart. Anson Mount is about the nearest to my Lestat that, that I can get. I actually looked him up today because I learned that he's on your screensaver. He is on my screensaver. Yeah. It was very important research. Thank you very much. Well, you know, I want to go uh, just to touch on this faith for a minute because this is one of the things that struck me when reading this book that, you know, the promise of eternal life that is offered to the blood drinkers, right? Mm-hmm. Eternal life is also promised to the Christian faithful who, you know, accept the blood of Christ. That's absolutely true. And it, it strikes me that vampires could be... Um, oddly a version of the saved rather than a version of the damned. And I wonder how that plays out for you. Well, it's, it's all working there in the book. There's no question about that. You know, I, I, I was always aware of the Eucharistic imagery of the blood, but I was never so aware of it as when they did the musical of Lestat on Broadway. And there was a moment in the play when I don't even remember what was happening, and I thought, gosh, it's so obviously Eucharistic imagery. My goodness. I mean, why did it hit me over the head before? Because they exchange blood, and, and they are, then they don't die. Death is conquered. So obviously I'm trying to work out in my, um, how would you call it, my agnosticism. Or, I, I'm a believer, but, but I'm not a doctrinaire believer or a doctrinal believer. And, and I'm trying to work out in my aloneness and in my cosmic uncertainty, I'm trying to work out something here. I mean, mm. that, that's very, very clear. You, you, you just mentioned something about the, the Broadway musical, but there have been many fans who have made music based on uh, the Vampire Chronicles. Right, yeah. And, and you've kind of embraced that, but less so fan fiction, and I wonder why not. Oh, when I first heard of fan fiction, I was very afraid of it because I was still writing about these characters. I am, again, writing about them. And I I was just afraid. I was terrified of the idea of someone using them in a story that maybe I wouldn't approve of or like. And I was afraid of reading it and that I would be blocked. But I've seen over the years that this is not something really that needs to be worried about. You know, so I really just don't pay any attention to it. It's not something I want to... Uh, license or get involved in, but it's not something I want to make a big deal out of. If if somebody out there wants to do it in an informal way, it's fine with me. I mean, I wouldn't advise any young writer to do it, but clearly young writers are doing it and then having great success by moving on to something else, Fifty Shades of Grey, mm-hmm. with fan fiction for Twilight, mm-hmm. apparently. So I, I don't really condemn it, you know. Fifty Shades of Grey, when that book came out, a lot of people referred to your erotica. Well, it gave my erotica a huge boost. Well, I wondered if you... <laughs> it did. It did. The publisher called. <laughs> did you also get a bump from the Twilight books? I don't think so. No. I, I wasn't aware of it. But, you know, all these books have, have sold steadily over the years. Uh, um, they all earn royalties and... and uh, 
the beauty books, the, the erotic trilogy I did, had always made pretty good royalties, just sort of an, as an underground uh, phenomenon. Here is a question about, um, and I, I wanted to get to this too. We talked a little bit about publishing. Publishing and reviewing have changed so much since you le- wrote your last books, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Very much. Here it says, we've heard a lot about anonymous reviews on book sites. Where do you stand on this and why? Anonymous reviews. Well, at one point I did sign a petition that was presented to Amazon to ask if they would require uh, reviewers to use their real names. And uh, I believed in that very much for the simple reason that I thought it might help to make reviewing um, more more responsible. There are some people who abuse anonymity to assume many different identities, and they can be very unpleasant on the Internet. We're all familiar with this. Mm-hmm. It's not just in the book world. It happens everywhere. Right. People behind pseudonyms can say some pretty irresponsible and pretty ugly things. And I thought this would help, but I've since um, been told by a number of people that they don't think they could review erotica or something like that under their real name because of their job Mm -hmm. or their church connection or something, and that they really are able to review more authentically behind a pseudonym because that keeps the family and the business from knowing what they're reading. And I think that's a pretty valid uh, reason for using a pseudonym. So I really don't know what the answer is to the basic problem. The, The problem that prompted me to look into it was the irresponsibility, the, the, again, the use of sock puppets names or mm-hmm. multiple identities to target people and go after them or uh, that type of thing. I was just trying to think of a solution. What could we do to make the Internet not so much like the Wild West and the OK Corral every five minutes? Yeah. I don't have an answer. I don't know if anybody does yet. I yeah. think this is going to be something that's an evolution. Another book uh, that you wrote during the time of your re-embracing of, of Roman Catholicism was a memoir called Out of Darkness, right. a spiritual confession. Right. Now, you've talked about not really turning your back or repudiating your books of that time, but do you think you were living in darkness then? Uh, I was definitely living in darkness when I went back to the Catholic Church in 1998. Mm-hmm. I was in a, a period of grief and despair. And, again, it was that grief for a belief system, a grief for, for cosmology that I'd lost. And there was, I did feel called out of darkness. As I said, I experienced that wonderful, seductive feeling of being part of something, going back to the Lord's banquet table and, and suddenly seeing um, eternity in terms of the Catholic cosmology. Mm-hmm. And it was a very beautiful and wonderful thing. It did not end up working for me. And now are you new? Are you, does this mean there's light now? Um, I don't know if there's light. I've come to believe that life is very, very painful and very, very difficult, and it's worth it. Mm-hmm. And part of life is cosmic uncertainty. We just don't know. We don't, I, I do not know whether I'll ever see my husband or my daughter again. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They may be gone. They may not exist. I would like to believe that I will see them again. I will after death, go to a place where there, is, where there are answers, explanations. We will understand it by and by. You know, it will all come clear, but that may not happen. And there may even be a hell, a Christian hell, and I may be in agony for all eternity. I don't know. Well, in, the, in part of the struggle that Lestat and the other vampires in the tribe have with the, the, 
curse of eternity, you know, mm-hmm. the, the relentlessness of time passing, is the idea of damnation. And this book offers some alternative visions to damnation. That, that. Well, the vampires in this book just don't want to accept being called the damned anymore. They're tired of it. They, you know, it's, it's Benji Mahmood. He says, mm-hmm. and hell shall have no dominion. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, we, I, we are not going to be a despised bunch of self-hating people. This isn't going to happen. And you elders, step up now and give us some help here and give us some wisdom. And, and that's kind of what the whole book is about, the mm-hmm. whole tribe. Um, just saying we have a place in, in this world simply because we are. We have a place. And we want to explore that. And this is a big shock to my old characters like Lestat and Armand because they have always regarded the dark gift as a curse. And they all have always felt devoutly guilty for taking life. And they have always uh, despised themselves and behaved like people who despise themselves. That, that's what they don't want to do anymore. They don't want to behave irresponsibly the way you can when you despise yourself. Mm-hmm. So you can be a shinier, happier vampire. <laughs> I wouldn't say shinier. We don't. We don't want to get into. We don't want to get into sparkling here. We don't want to get close to that. But you can eat local. Let's just say a, you can be a kinder, gentler vampire. Anne Rice, author of Prince Lestat, the 13th volume in her best-selling Vampire Chronicles, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. A co-production of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth in collaboration with River Run Books. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. NHPR president is Betsy Gardella. Producer and communication director is Margaret Talcott. The live sound and recording and mixing engineer is Rachel Newbar. Bob Lord and Dreadnought provide live music. Broadcast producer for NHPR is Maureen McMurray. Photos from the event are posted online at Clear Eye Photo. And you can look at photos and listen to more author interviews from the series at wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. Word of Mouth is produced by Taylor Quimby, Logan Shannon, Zach Nugent, and senior producer Maureen McMurray. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. To subscribe to our podcasts and listen to past shows, go to wordofmouthradio.org. You can also join us on Facebook at Word of Mouth Radio. Follow us on Twitter at Word of Mouth. And check out a playlist of music from the program on Spotify. Word of Mouth is a production of New Hampshire Hampshire Public Public Radio. Radio.